0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, January 13, 2019. The SHARE ID numbers for Friday, January eleventh, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,409. That's 12409. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,410. That's 12410. This morning, a vision for you presents Life Will Take On New Meaning. Step 12 states Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. The 12 step sums up our 12 step recovery program as a lifetime undertaking based on the practice of spiritual principles and service to others, to other compulsive overeaters. Bill Wilson writes in the AA 12 and 12 that the joy of living is the theme of AA's 12 step, and action is its key word. We must carry OA's message, otherwise we ourselves may fall into decay and those who have not yet been given the truth may die. This is why we so often say that action is the magic word. Even though we have to carry the message of recovery, it turns out that carrying the message becomes, for us, one of the most significant things that we do. As a result of our spiritual awakening, we become less and less interested in ourselves and more and more interested in what we can contribute to life. A deep desire to help others begins to emerge. The 12-step recovery process transforms our lives into an extraordinarily powerful journey charged with meaning, purpose, and usefulness. Joining us today is Joe M., a Recovered Compulsive Overeater from Minnesota. Joe is dedicated to the 12-step design for living and a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous devoted to carrying this message of recovery. Welcome to the line, Joe.
1: Good morning, Leah. Can you hear me okay?
0: Yes, I hear you well.
1: Okay, Hi, everybody. My name is Joe, and I'm a compulsive overeater. That's about one of the truest things that I ever say about myself. Uh, So I'm happy to share that fact with you today. Um, I am going to talk about Step 12, but first, I'm going to tell you how I got to Step 12, beginning with a little bit of my story, because I always think it's important that whenever I'm going to share, that um, I give you uh, an idea of where I came from so that you know that I am one of you. My highest weight was 254 pounds. That's 120 pounds heavier than I am now. And I tell people my my previous weight so that you can get an idea of how desperate my overeating actually was. For me to be overeating that much with that kind of desperation to get me at that weight, that much higher than a normal weight for me, tells you something about this addiction. I have a long and tortured history of compulsive overeating. I was in chronic pain and powerlessness and misery over what I was doing with food. I was binging every night. I was eating massive quantities of food. I have a recovery friend who who said one time during a share of hers, I never ate too much because I could never eat enough. And that is true for me. I had stashes of food in my purse in my car, at my desk at work, under my bed, in my dresser drawer. The stashes never lasted long, but I needed them there to prop me up so that I could function. And that's really the underlying um, push for me to overeat was that I needed to do it to function. I actually couldn't function very well when I wasn't overeating. I would plan my binges, which took me out of the present moment, Thinking about where I would go, what I would get, did I have enough money, and if I didn't have enough money, where would I get the money, how could I hide what I was doing, and so on. I had to have the sugar, the flour, the fat, the salt, and the volume. Um, I needed the excess food to survive. That's what it felt like to me in my system, that if I didn't have all that food, I actually wouldn't survive. Now, someone outside of me who's not a compulsive overeater would say, "Well, you don't need to overeat to survive. You just need a, you know, a reasonable amount of food to survive." And that's an intellectual um, position. I mean, that's kind of like a biological position. The position of my, of my soul, of my ego, of my inside was that if I don't get that sugary thing right now, I won't survive. Uh, When I took that first bite, I was so relieved, it took the edge off immediately, and I felt like I could see straight. But the first bite itself was never enough. It drove me into binging without end. I was crazy with food. I had a mania around food. I could not think normally when it came to food. Some of the things I did, I shoplifted food. I ate food in bathroom stalls. I stole food from my babysitting clients. I ate food off the floor. I ate food out of the garbage. I made note of the location of vending machines, like when I was in college, and later in buildings where I worked. I I would walk by it maybe for the first time and say, oh, document this in your mind. Here's where a vending machine is. This is where you can come to get your fix when you need it. I remember walking out of my bank one time And I noticed a candy dispenser. And I said to myself, remember this is here in case you're ever in the neighborhood and you need a fix. I ate alone instead of being with people. I ate until I felt physically sick. I indulged in fantasies about being able to make a deal with someone who would then magically take my weight off. One fantasy was that someone would offer me a deal if I drank my own urine, they would take all my weight off. And then I would spend time debating that. Would I do that? Would I actually agree to that? Would I go through the grotesque motions of of doing that in order to take my weight off? I snuck around at night to get food in the kitchen after everyone else had gone to bed. I did that a lot in high school. I come from a large family, so there was a lot of waiting out for all everyone else to go to bed so that I could eat in secret. Despite hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of food hangovers, I continued to eat. You know, I'd wake up in the morning with a food hangover. Um, my stomach would be gurgling out of sickness, not out of hunger. My head would be hot. I had head rushes when I sat up in bed. I felt nauseous. I didn't want to get up. Food hangovers. And yet that didn't stop me from continuing to eat. I had weight gain that pushed me into morbid obesity. Um, I mean at 120 pounds overweight and I actually checked a medical chart. That's morbid obesity, which means that I was so overweight that I was putting myself at risk of getting an obesity related health condition that could kill me. And despite that, I continued to eat. Despite worrying about the health consequences of obesity, like getting heart disease, diabetes, cancer. I continued to eat despite fear. I had fear of things like falling in wintertime and breaking a bone on ice. I live in Minnesota. During the winter, we've got ice, and it gets very slippery, and you can slip in an instant and fall. It actually can be very treacherous. Well, when I was obese, I, was, I would worry about that, especially because my, my excess body weight threw off my balance. I wasn't able to balance very well. So it made me more at risk of a fall like that. But that didn't stop me from continuing to eat, um, despite not being able to move easily due to my obesity. Things like I can't run when I'm in a hurry. I can't get in and out of bed easily. I can't get in and out of my car easily. I can't go up and down stairs very easily. I mean, I had to sit or lean against something everywhere I went because gravity was pulling so hard on my body. And I had been an athlete in high school, and here I was 15 years later, not even being able to walk across a flat floor without being out of breath. And despite that, I continued to eat. Despite temporary weight loss and the physical relief, that that brought I always returned to overeating so that was never a solution to my problem despite the eating taking on more and more intrusive place in my life and an oppressive place in my life I continued to eat I mean it was just crowding in and crowding in and crowding in it was taking over more of my mental energy taking over more of my spending because I was going to be going to a variety of places in order to get my food I believed with all my might that my mind could save me from overeating, but it never did. And so trying to figure this out in my mind just made it worse. Trying to think my way out of it always failed. Um, I was in OA. I had been in OA, um, and uh, that didn't stop me from compulsively overeating. My membership in OA did not stop me. I remember um, after an OA meeting one time, I went to work and I ended up binging all day I induced vomiting at night and that was still not my last binge Um, I remember sitting at night in front of the television one time alone and I had this piece of sugary thing in my hand and I asked myself what do I have if I don't have this and the answer was nothing my whole world was contained in this thing of the sugary flowery thing that I had in my hand I mean life got really small Um, One time my binge was so bad I was riding on the floor of my employer's bathroom wanting to vomit after a huge binge at the movies the night before. Um, I am a compulsive overeater down to my bones. I am one of you. I meet the definition of being a compulsive overeater, and I've paid the price of admission into this fellowship. I came to OA out of sheer desperation. I had no idea what you offered, and I had no idea what I would find here or what the nature of my condition was, or what I would be asked to do to recover. But my soul was crying out for something other than what I had. Um, for a few years in OA, I believed that going to meetings was the heart of my recovery. I thought that if I worked the tools, uh, these external tools, what, what I'm call what i now calling the external tools, um, that I would recover. Not the internal tools, but the external tools that I would recover. Um, I thought it was up to me to decide what I would eat with no input from anyone else. I felt entitled to pick and choose when I would work with a sponsor and I wanted sponsors to support my point of view and make me feel okay about myself. Eventually, I came face-to-face with my addiction at a new level when I had yet another binge that took two days to recover from and it wasn't even my worst binge. I got newly abstinent I got a recovered sponsor and I started going through the steps using the big book method and so I was I had started my big book journey and then that same year a new meeting came to town where I saw a depth and power of recovery I did not know was possible my recovery dates from November 10th 2009 so I want to quickly go through that's a one through 11 before I get into step 12. Um, so step one, we admitted we were powerless, that our lives had become unmanageable. That's the two-pronged uh, problem, uh, the allergy of the body. In the doctor's opinion, it says all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. I've got trigger foods. There are foods that I eat. They trigger the phenomenon of craving. That's physical. Um, There's nothing I can do about that other than abstain from those foods. And then I've got this other problem, the obsession of the mind. The big book says, so we shall describe the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. For obviously, this is the crux of the problem. That's on page 35. So the crux of the problem, meaning the heart of the problem. So I actually have a thinking problem. I don't have a weight gain problem. I have a thinking problem. Um, I can't control my physical response to my binge foods and I can't control the obsession for food even in the abstinence state. So I got help and direction to put the food down and have a method by which to keep it down um, with a lot of structure. Um, In the surrendered abstinence state, I heard and saw people in OA who had experienced a solution to this problem. Uh, In the big book on page 45, it says we had to find a power by which we could live it doesn't say we had to find a power by which we could eat. It says a power by which we could live. And as I saw these people who had experienced the solution, um, I asked one of them to sponsor me. That was that person that I asked um, that year. Um, and I believe that um, that's part that was part of my step two experience, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I was feeling the hopefulness Um, that I saw in other people, and that maybe that was possible for me. Um, So he guided me through the inventory steps, and I was willing to follow his guidance because he had long-term abstinence and a transformed inner life. And I decided to go ahead with the inventory, which was my step three. I did the inventory, step four. Um, I identified my behaviors and patterns, um, and then, then I gave them away. I mean, I read the whole thing to my sponsor. That was step five. My step four was it was very thorough. Um, I felt the pain of the realizations that came up for me in steps four and five, the realizations of my behavior and my thinking patterns, and I wanted desperately to become free of that, and that was step six and seven. I made a list of all people I had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. That was step eight. Um, and then I went out with my sponsors, Um, filtering through my sponsors input I went out and made amends to the people and institutions on my list that was step 9 and my whole world changed inside of me a personality change was taking hold inside in the middle of step 9 on the heels of step 9 I learned about inventorying new disturbances using the exact same process as 4 through 9 so that was a step 10 the new disturbances step 10 and I started learning about what was required to maintain and improve my relationship with this energy that I had gained access to in step nine, which I now call God, I didn't at the time, um a power greater than myself, universal spirit. so and that was step eleven. So now that brings us to step twelve, which says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all of our in all our affairs I'm going to focus today on carrying the message to compulsive overeaters um, there's that there's that other part practicing these principles which is could be a whole other talk I'm going to focus on carrying the message to compulsive overeaters because I've had a number of experiences in people carrying the message to me and me carrying the message to others that I, I think is important and I want to focus on so The step assumes that I've gone through the first 11 steps because that's what produces the spiritual awakening. This awakening is the essence of the message that I'm supposed to carry. Um, So the message is not that I've lost 120 pounds. I share that with people because I want you to know one of the side effects of recovery is weight loss. And if I had zero weight loss, my message would have zero credibility. Um, So the the message is, what are they referring to when they say this message? It's the spiritual awakening. The big book describes the spiritual awakening in a variety of ways. On page 567, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. Page 27, huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Page 25, rocketed, we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence. Page 12, our roots have grasped a new soil. Page 50, there's been a revolutionary change in our way of living and thinking. Page 63, we were reborn. The AA 12 and 12 also has a beautiful passage in the chapter on step 12, which I will read. This is on page 106 and 107. Our 12th step also says that as a result of practicing all the steps, we have each found something called a spiritual awakening. To new AAs, this often seems like a very dubious and improbable state of affairs. What do you mean when you talk about a spiritual awakening, they ask? Maybe there are as many definitions of spiritual awakenings as there are people who have had them. But certainly, each genuine one has something in common with all the others. And these things, which they have in common, are not too hard to understand. When a man or a woman has a spiritual awakening, the most important meaning of it is that he has now become able to do, feel, and believe that which he could not do before on his unaided strength and resources alone. He has been granted a gift which amounts to a new state of consciousness and being. He has been set on a path which tells him he is really going somewhere, that life is not a dead end, not something to be endured or mastered. In a very real sense, he has been transformed because he has laid hold of a source of strength which, in one way or another, he had hitherto denied himself. He finds himself in possession of a degree of honesty, tolerance, unselfishness, peace of mind, and love, of which he had thought himself quite incapable. What he has received is a free gift, and yet usually, at least in some small part, he has made himself ready to receive it. So these are what we experience as the result of these steps. So if you are ever wondering, or you have a sponsee who's ever wondering, or a newcomer who's ever wondering, what do you mean spiritual awakening? The literature has descriptions for us. The literature has language for us. If we are at a loss for words ourselves, we can go to the big book. We can go to the AA 12 and 12. So what we carry when we carry a message is this. It's the fact that we've undergone a transformation internally. And now, our job is to translate that experience to the newcomer or anyone else who has not yet been transformed. I want to say that you know it it's it talks about um you know that we carry a message to compulsive overeaters um, and but who is that specifically who who are we carrying the message to because there's a lot of people who are compulsive overeaters in the world. Um, But who are we carrying the message to? I mean, ideally, we'd carry the message to all of them. (laughs) But um, I like the definition in the AA 12 and 12. This is in Traditions 5 on page 151. Under these compulsions of self-preservation, duty, and love, it is not strange that our society has concluded that it has but one high mission, to carry the AA message to those who don't know there's a way out. And I like that definition of, you know, we say the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Who is it who still suffers? It's those who don't know there's a way out. So they're suffering, number one, and two, they don't know there's a way out. So when someone comes to an OA meeting, they are someone who, in their new, I'm assuming they've done some suffering, but they don't yet know there's a way out. There are also people in OA who are not newcomers who don't know there's a way out. I never assume when I hear, for example, the first thing I ever find out about somebody, for example, is that they serve at the World Service body. They're on the World Service uh, board. I don't assume that they know there's a way out. I don't assume that the chair of an inner group knows there's a way out. I don't assume that someone who's been in OA for 40 years knows there's a way out. I don't assume that because those things do not guarantee that someone has found a way out. They are just representations of either chronological time or activity at a service body in OA. The people who know there's a way out are people who have been internally transformed. And so I assume, for example, if I go to an OA meeting for the very first time, I have no idea if anyone in that room knows there's a way out. And so I see that entire room as a potential group of people who I'm going to carry the message to when I open my mouth and share. So once we get to step 12, we've had an unmistakable, shake you down to your bones, inner experience, and we have no doubt about that. You know, somebody asked me last spring, I was somewhere and um, sharing a message, and and either I thought to say this or somebody asked me, you know, well, how do you know? And I said, you know, it's kind of like... um, how do you know you've been on an airplane? Like if someone asked you, have you ever been on an airplane and flown somewhere? Would you say, oh, gee, I, uh, hmm. let me think about that. Oh, let's see, i got to think back. When you've been on an airplane and you've been up in the air, you know it. You know it. There's no question. And the same is true here. So if you or anyone you're sponsoring ever has, if they're expressing a doubt or a dilemma, or a reservation of any kind, whether or not they've had a spiritual awakening, they haven't had it. The chapter, Working with Others, in the big book, is a, a wonderful um, resource for why we do this work and how we do this work. So I just want to share some from from that chapter. First of all, why we do this work. This is on page 89. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember they are very ill. Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Life will take on new meaning. Well, I mean, I need to carry the message. I know that. I mean, it's a drive inside of me and I actually got uh, the first beginnings of that when I was in the middle of step nine. I mean, I came home from one of my amends saying to myself, oh, my God, I have to go tell my people about this. I have to go back to my Saturday meeting, and I have to tell people about this. I mean, it was like a compulsion, but in a good way. So I need to carry the message practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. Why do I work with other compulsive overeaters? Because that's one of the things that helps me ensure immunity from compulsive overeating. It's my own life I'm saving. But then they also say life will take on new meaning. It's not only that I will survive, but my life will take on new meaning. And why is that? Well, I think this this passage in one of the stories answers that question beautifully. This is from Women Suffer 2 on page 207 of the big book. I have something to contribute to humanity. Since I am peculiarly qualified as a fellow sufferer to give aid and comfort to those who have stumbled and fallen over this business of meeting life, I get my greatest thrill of accomplishment from the knowledge that I have played a part in the new happiness achieved by countless others like myself. Why is it important that I find this new meaning? Because that's one of the things that attaches me to God, the God of my experience. And I need to be attached to God from my life, for my life to have any meaning. I need to be attached to God. And who is this God? This is the God that I met in the middle of my step night. This is the God that I was introduced to when I was making my amends, that I did not know was in me. It was in me, and it was released. When I know that my life has meaning, by helping others like me, helping them crawl out of the hellhole of active compulsive overeating, I know that I have a purpose, and it's a good and
2: beautiful purpose, I have a conviction today in my utter need to help
1: others who suffer from the addiction of compulsive overeating. I had a medical appointment a couple of months ago, and in that medical appointment, um, there was a nurse uh, They often start you off with a nurse who asks some questions and takes your blood pressure and that kind of thing and This nurse was very overweight. Now, I never take it upon myself to share information about Overeaters Anonymous just because someone's overweight, but my radar is up. I'm listening for something, anything that they might say that opens a door for me. And sure enough, this happened during this little chat with the nurse. And then um, we but I didn't have an opportunity time-wise to really tell her about OA, but I kept thinking about her and thinking about her. So the doctor came in, and we had the, I had the doctor's appointment. And um, and then I told the doctor, who was not overweight, I don't think he was one of us, but I told him about Overeaters Anonymous. And because he he talked about uh, some things I could do re- regarding this, you know, this illness that I had. And they were all they were all food related. And I laughed and I said, I'm already doing all this stuff. Um, and I just I kept thinking about that nurse and thinking about that nurse and thinking about that nurse. And I thought. I can't leave here. I cannot leave this clinic without telling her about OA. Our appointment is over. Is she still there? You know, if I if I talk to her in person, am I taking her off, you know, off um, off center because I'm catching her off guard? And then something came to me. Okay, I I went so I went to the front uh, station and I said, Do you have a plain piece of eight and a half by 11 plain piece of paper that you could give me? And they said yes. And I went and I wrote a note. And I had gotten her name, and I folded up the note, and then I uh, handed it back to the front desk. And said, would you please give this to? And then I, I said the nurse's name, and they said yes, thank you. And before I folded up, I took a photo of it because I wanted to remember this so that I could share this with others. Because I think it's important that we share our twelve stepping with each other, that we give each other examples of how we get to do this. So this was the this is a little note that I wrote. Hi, and her name. I just got done with my appointment here. And wanted to share some information with you in case it's helpful in any way. When you were taking my blood pressure and we were talking about it, and you said my blood pressure was good, that you wished yours was that good, and that a low blood pressure is better for your heart, I have lost 120 pounds and kept it off through a program called Overeaters Anonymous. My life is so much better, not only because of the sustained weight loss, but also because I don't want to overeat anymore. The mania for food is gone. I struggled with overeating most of my life, and today I have a stable, effective life because of the program. Overeat is Anonymous is a 12-step program like Alcoholics Anonymous. There are OA meetings all over the Twin Cities. You can find information about it as well as a meeting list online. I felt an urge to share this with you today. Thank you for your nursing care, and I wish you the best, sincerely. And then I signed my name, and then under that I put patient. Um, Now, of course, you know, I didn't know her, and I didn't have time for a real conversation. I only had this note. I only had a note to give her. So what did I want to tell her in the note? Um, So I I told her what I could in, in the note. most importantly, I mean, I told her, I gave her the name of Overeaters Anonymous and where she could find information. Because um, I want anyone who I leave information with to be able to follow up on their own and not rely on me for, you know, getting more information. Um, so I get to be clear today why I'm carrying the message. I have no doubt about that. I have no conflict about that. I have a conviction about that today. Um, and life does take on new meaning for me. Life has taken on new meaning for me. Um so I do want to go into some of the other passages in in working with others and just talk about my own experience um, with this. At the bottom of page eighty nine, "To be helpful is our only aim," and I, you know, I've kind of recently really taken this into my heart. To be helpful, I mean, I've read that a thousand times, but I just kind of in the last, I don't know, maybe. Nine, six months or so within the last year, I've really, really taken that to heart and really incorporated it into my 12-stepping. To be helpful is my only aim. Not to be domineering, not to be in control, not to be in charge, not to have the answers, but to be helpful. Um, and being helpful doesn't mean enabling anybody, but it means that's my job. My job is to be helpful And so that's a really good container for me to stay within. Because I have to tell you, when I'm not motivated by being helpful, that's when I have to go back and make amends. And I don't want to have to go back and make amends. I'd rather stay within the boundary in the first place and be more effective that way. On page 90, if he doesn't want to see you, never force yourself on him. And that has taken me some practice. Earlier in my recovery journey, I did try to force myself on people because I assumed something that was false. I've learned not to assume this anymore. What I assumed was if someone comes to an OA meeting, they're ready to do what we do. And I have learned, you know, I learned the hard way over and over and over and over and over, and over again that just because someone comes to an OA meeting does not mean they're ready for what we do. And also, it doesn't automatically mean that they want to hear it from me. You know, they might want to hear it from somebody else. I'm not the carrier of Overeaters Anonymous. I mean, I have my own experience, and I can carry the message to the best of my ability. But, you know, there might be something about my style or my tone that's maybe not attractive to somebody, so maybe they can hear it from somebody else. So I am not to force myself on anybody. Um, Page 91. When he sees you know all about the drinking game, commence to to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Tell him how baffled you were, how you finally learned that you were sick. Give him an account of the struggles he made to stop. Show him the mental twist, which leads to the first drink of a spree. We suggest you do this as we have done in the chapter on alcoholism. If he is alcoholic, he will understand you at once. He will match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. I get the opportunity to do this a lot because I'm calling people who are new. They're either new to OA or they're new to the idea of recovery. And I will ask them when I'm talking to them, usually it's on the phone, I'll ask them. I said, you know, what would be most helpful to you? You know, do you want to talk about yourself? I can share a little bit of my story with you if that would be helpful. Most of the time, people want to hear a little bit of my story. And so I tell them my story because the first thing I want to do with someone who I'm talking to for the first time is to establish that I'm just like you. I am like you. I want to give them the opportunity to identify in. And how can they do that? By hearing the stuff that I've done in my overeating so I don't talk to them about a spiritual way that's not the first thing I talk to them about my spiritual the first thing I talk to them about is the hopelessness the despair the misery so that they can hear someone and hopefully identify with at least some of what I'm saying so that they know hey that happened to Joe gosh that happened to me too oh Joe did that oh I did that too And in doing that, what we are doing for people is we are enabling them to have an experience, hopefully just maybe a little bit of hope, a little bit of opening, that maybe there's hope for them too. As I've heard said, you know, hope can be someone's first higher power. And what a beautiful and divine errand that is that we get to go on, that we get to be an instrument for someone else's hope. Can you think of a more beautiful thing to do than that? Page 94, the more hopeless he feels, the better. He will be more likely to follow your suggestions. I find this true when I'm working with someone who's been in relapse. If someone has been in relapse, they've come to Overeaters Anonymous. They've had a taste of what we offer. Maybe they've had a really good taste of what we offer, and then they go back. And their desperation and misery is even worse, perhaps, than it was in the beginning. And they hit, they, they hit that hopelessness. And where else would you find the idea of hopelessness being a good thing? Like, you know, usually anywhere else in the world, hopelessness is a bad thing, something you want to avoid. In here, hopelessness, really, frankly, is a necessary ingredient. Because who would do all of this if we weren't hopeless? Because what does hopelessness do for us? It creates desperation, doesn't it? I mean, it did for me, and that's that's what I've seen in others. It creates desperation,
2: and desperation then becomes the fuel to move us into action. Page 95. If he thinks he can do the job in some other way
1: or prefers some other spiritual approach, encourage him to follow his own conscience. I had this experience just this last week. I was I called two newcomers, and one of them, you know, one of them, based on something I had said, uh, she said, "Oh, well, I can just do that then," meaning she could just take this piece and go off and do it on her own. And I thought, "Oh, you know what? You're not ready." Um, and either well, either someone's not ready, or they're not one of us. You know, when I'm having conversations with someone who are new. Um, and they and I hear that, and maybe it's probably a lot of you have too. You're on the phone with someone who's new, and they're they're in fight mode. They're in resistance mode. And I get that. Oh, my gosh, do I get that? Because that was me. You know, fight mode and, res- gosh, I know that really well. I've got a fight in me and a resistor in me that's very powerful. And, wow, you know, when I'm in that place, there's nothing you can say that will help me. There's nothing you can say that's going to get in because, you know, that resistance and that fight, I mean, it's a brick wall. And I think, so I thought about this and I thought, well, why do people come to OA and they're still in fight mode even after coming to a meeting? Why don't they just automatically surrender and give in to what we do? But I think because I think, I know this is true for me, I think surrender can come in layers and sometimes for some, this is true for me. I mean, I went to my very first OA meeting in 1993. It took me three years to come back because it was all I could do to come to one meeting. That's all the courage I could muster. And I think for people, you know, some people, they come in, it's all they can do. The only thing they can do is come to a meeting. They can't do anything else. They're not, they're just not there yet. And But this instruction has saved me a lot of heartache, because as I say, you know, I used to I used to just push and force and try and fight with people, and I don't do that anymore. Instead, what I say is, you know, uh, if they've been to one meeting, you say, you know, always suggests that you go to six meetings uh, before you decide what you want to do. And I said, I think that's a great idea, um, and I I encourage you to go to a variety of types of meetings, and you'll know where you feel comfortable, you know where where you'll feel at home, you'll know where you feel inspired. And that's what I say to those people. And that way, I'm giving them something. I'm giving them some information, you know, an idea that they can follow up on, but I'm not fighting with them. I think that's more helpful to them and it's definitely more helpful to me. It saves my energy a lot. Page 97, helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. And you know, I I'd read read that a hundred times and I had gotten it up into a certain, um, to a certain point. It had taken hold of me to a certain point. But in the summer of 2017, I finally got it. In in my gut. I mean, I finally like really really got it. Deep in. And I don't know, I don't it wasn't any one thing that happened in the summer of 2017. I guess I was just ready. You know, and for some of us it takes longer chronologically than others, but it just it took me, you know, I think in some sometimes I'm a slow learner. But you know, thank goodness I I learned, <laughs> um, and so it just it, that summer I made a transition. I made this shift. Oh my God, I have to do I have to do this. It's not an option. And I started chasing. Meaning not in a bad way, not in a controlling way, but I started seeking out newcomers in a way I never had. Um, I started really knowing. Oh my God, I have to be sponsoring people every day, and if I have an opening, I better I better fill it. You you know, you have an opening for a sponsor Joe. You better fill it. You call those newcomers, call those people who are struggling. Maybe what might come out of that call is someone who needs a sponsor. I want to read two, uh, two passages together. One is on page 98 and the other on page 99. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. Remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon people. Is dependent upon his relationship with God, and I have to tell you, I, you know, as a sponsor, I have to practice this daily. And what I share with people is, you know, because I've thought about this. I like, well, what do you mean? It's not dependent upon people. I mean, we need a fellowship, and that requires people. You know, we need sponsors. That that's people. We need newcomers. That's people. What do you mean? It's not dependent upon people. What I What I have come to understand for me is that no one's recovery is dependent on any one person. So my sponsee's recovery is not dependent on me. It's dependent on their relationship with God, with their God, not my God, their God. It's dependent upon their having a a spiritual awakening as the result of them doing the steps. It's the result of them continuing to take inventory, of them improving their conscious contact with a power greater than themselves, of them carrying the message. It's the, That's their work to do. That's their surrender to do. I'm a tool in their toolbox. But you know what? It's my responsibility to be the best tool I can be in their toolbox. Um, but I have to tell you that, you know, and this program is one of like continual, continual learning. I still get into that thinking that somehow I'm in charge of my sponsee's recovery. That somehow something that I'm gonna say is gonna be the magic thing that's going to make a difference for them. You know, I still I still have that. It's still something that I that I walk with. Um and as I go along in this program, there may come a time when I won't have that in me anymore. You know, because I'm a different sponsor now than I was six months ago. I'm a different sponsor now than I was a year ago. And maybe six months from now and a year from now and five years from now, not maybe, but for sure, I will be a different sponsor. And maybe that part of me, maybe that won't be so loud anymore. I don't know. Um, But today, I get to inventory that. I get to talk to my own sponsor about that. And that's another thing. I also have a sponsor. I believe very strongly in this. I believe that if I am going to take on the responsibility of sponsoring others that I have a responsibility of having a sponsor myself. Um, Because, and I remember hearing this and an AA speaker said this, he said, you know, when my sponsees call me, I can tell when they're getting off track just like that. I can tell when they're being dishonest just like that. But I don't see it so clearly in me. And he said, that's why sponsors need sponsors. And so I'm I'm a strong proponent. Now, there's not universal agreement about this in our fellowship, and that's okay, but that's just my, just that's been my experience. Page 100, both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. And this is something that I, you know, I, I continue to be reminded about, too, because sometimes I've lost sight of this. And then I had, you know, and then the program reminds me, Joe, you have a responsibility to grow and change in the program. You have a responsibility to learn more about what's in the big book. You know, and I, I used to I used to call myself a big book thumper. Gosh, boy, if you want to humbly, you know, start calling yourself a big book thumper and you find out how that, I don't know, for me, I, I what I have, what I continue to learn is that I'm a student of the big book. Um, I'm not an authority on the big book. I'm not an expert on the big book and I never will be. You know, Bill W., who co-created the program, said one time, and this is in one of the, uh, I think, I think it's in one of the Daily Readers. I think it might be in, it's, I think it's in, I don't want to misstate it, but it's in one of the day, AA Daily Readers. And it, he said, uh, I learned to be a student of the program rather than the teacher I thought I once was. And I've never forgotten that. I read that years ago. I've never forgotten that. Because if Bill W., who co-created the program can be a student of the program, then certainly I can be a student of the program. Um, And when I'm reminded that I'm a student rather than a teacher, I'm in a much better place. I'm actually more knowledgeable when I'm a student rather than a teacher. Page 102. Your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. And I don't know if they're talking about going somewhere physically to be helpful or going somewhere spiritually to be helpful. But either way, you know, where am I going? Where am I traveling, whether spiritually or geographically, in order to be helpful? Okay, so never hesitate to go anywhere. Never hesitate to write a note to a nurse if you can be helpful. And after that experience, too, I must say that I decided that from now on, every single medical appointment that I have, I'm going to initiate the uh, information about Overeaters Anonymous. I'm going to tell them about Overeaters Anonymous. I'm going to say that I, that my weight loss, that I've kept it off, that my inner life has changed. Where do you find it? Because we all know medical professionals are working with obese people all the time or anorexics and bulimics they're working with they see us all the time and I have not met a single solitary medical professional who's not happy to have this information They—they they're, and they write it down what was the name of that again? So who decides if I'm being helpful? So never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful so my aim is to be helpful to be helpful is my only aim but who decides if I'm actually being helpful? The person on the other end That's who decides. My sponsees decide. That nurse is going to decide. The medical professional is going to decide. The newcomer is going to decide. Because I can't say whether or not I've actually been helpful to you. Only you can say if I've been helpful to you. That's been my aim. I've done my part. I've gone on my spiritual errand. And then you get get to say whether or not it's helpful. And, you know, a lot of times I may never know if I'm helping you. If you and I have had a phone conversation, I do the very best I can to carry the message to you, I may never know. I may never know when I'm giving my story to my home group, I may never know if I'm helpful to someone there. I don't know if I'm going to be helpful to anybody on this line right now. I don't know. And when I realize that it's not my job to know, oh my gosh, I can't tell you how freeing that was. I don't have to know. But I have to be on the errand. I have to be on the spiritual errand. So, as I've been referencing, I mean, there's a variety of t- types, I mean, not types, but groups, um, types of opportunities to carry a message one-on-one, uh, sponsorship to a group. We can carry a message to a whole group. Um, and then there's information sharing, like with a medical professional or anybody else who, someone who, you know, I did this, uh, I was at a professional conference a few years ago and uh we were eating lunch together and I had my you know, I had my food, I, I weigh all my food, so I was weighing it at the at the table and the woman said, to me, Oh, I was noticing what you're doing with your food and I just I gave her a little bit of information and she goes, Oh, she goes, My husband suffers from that. She said, He's gonna be having the surgery. There it is, there's my opening. And I did my little spiel, you know, and I said it wasn't I say spiel but I but I, I don't mean that in a dismissive way. But I have to tell you. I mean, I'm at the ready. I've got my little. I've got my little nugget that I share. Overeaters Anonymous. It's online. It's twelve step program. I don't. You know, I don't want to overeat anymore. I've lost 120 pounds. Um, and it's not that. It's and I'm not trying to promote us as a diet and calories club. But if someone doesn't hear that, because most of the, a lot of people come in are obese, and if they don't hear about the weight loss, they might not have any hope. So I think they do need to hear that. Um, and I wrote down. So I I got a piece of note paper. Over here is anonymous. It's online. It's twelve different. So and I wrote down the name. And then I said, you know, I'm going to leave you my name and number in case your husband wants to call me. He's free to call me, um, but he was over to anonymous. Um, because and I and I normally don't do that. I normally don't. But I think because I met her one on one, I thought, you know, go ahead and leave your name and number. My just my first name only. He never called, but, you know, and maybe that was a mistake. I don't know. But um, I wanted to do everything I could to give him the opportunity to call. I think especially because she said that he was going to have the surgery. And, you know, I, I don't know, probably a lot of you have met folks, and I've met folks, they have the surgery, and that doesn't solve our problem. And then they come to our rooms, and they've had the surgery, um, and, you know, and it, it didn't work. I mean, the surgery worked, but it didn't solve the problem that we have.
2: So. Um, I heard someone um, give a talk
1: on vision for you. Actually, he talked about um, the different kinds of parenting and how you can relate that to sponsorship. And it was so helpful for me to hear that. And I just want to share some of my some of my thinking about that um, and how I get to practice sponsorship today. Because I sponsor I sponsor daily. People call me every day, so I have a daily opportunity to practice these things. And he talked about um, brick wall, jellyfish, and backbone. Brick wall. You know, it's rigid and there's no room to move. Jellyfish, there's no boundaries. And backbone is it has a structure, but you can move. And so here's, and so I I wrote a little bit about that. I have this little like sort of mini bookmark that I created. Like, okay, well, what are the qualities of a jellyfish? No boundaries, unclear, inconsistent, doesn't ask questions, makes assumptions, no structure, no accountability, low expectations, little or no follow through, apathetic, unresponsive, permits unacceptable behavior, apologetic. And under that, I put a word and I put it in a box. Apathy, brick wall, Uh, easily threatened, dictatorial, harsh, impatient, demanding, authoritarian, reactive, closed, commanding, demands absolute obedience, punishing, retaliatory, inflexible, angry, domineering, autocratic, fear-inducing, no sense of humor, no choices, controlling, and under that I put a word in a box, fear. Backbone, is clear, listens well, proactively Uh, Correctly communicates, responds well, is fair, shares information, is just, has strength, is open to conversation, negotiates where needed, provides choices, holds boundaries, has sense of humor, controls own behavior but not that of others, uses reasonable tone of voice, sees diversity of choices, responsive, is humble, based in the big book, and under that I put a word in a box, love. Because this is what motivates me, and I've had these moments. I've had my I've had my jellyfish moments. Apathy. I I boy. I used to be a brick wall in sponsorship. I was a brick wall sponsor. Fear, because that that was motivating me. Fear was motivating my sponsorship. Backbone. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God, I get to practice being a backbone sponsor today. And I fall down on the job sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm a brick wall, sometimes I'm a jellyfish, and and then I owe amends to that. I either owe an apology, I owe a follow-up comment, a follow-up question. Mostly, though, today, I get to practice being a backbone. And I love that. I love being motivated by love, because why do I do this in the first place? Because I want you to have what I have. You, who I'm sponsoring. I care about you. I care about you having the experience that I've had, and having your life transformed. And, and why is that? Because you and I have the same condition. So, um, I was gonna address. Okay, so I'll, I'll just. There was another aspect I wanted to address. Maybe I can hold it for the question and answer period. But um, that you can, you know, this myth that you can still eat and work the steps. Um, that you can still overeat and and work the steps. I want to tell you. Um, I, I called it a myth here in my notes, but actually that's a lie. Um that that is a lie from the bottom of <laughs> the worst place. It's just not true. Um and so if I'm sponsoring you, um, you will not be eating while going through the steps. Um you will be abstinent. And I'm gonna help you with that. I'm gonna give away what I've been given. Um, so I think I'm gonna I'm gonna close. Um In the foreword to the second edition of the big book on page XVI, referring to Bill W., it says, he suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic. I have realized that in order to save myself, I must carry the message to another compulsive overeater. And I must carry this message with enough, enough love For the people I sponsor, that I am willing to tell them the truth about their condition and what is required to recover from it. And that anyone else I carry the message to, that I come from a place of love and that I stay within the boundaries as laid out for us so beautifully in the chapter, Working with Others. Life has taken on new meaning for me. Thank you for listening and I will pass.
0: Thank you, Joe, for being so helpful this morning. Thank you for your informative and illuminating presentation. Joe's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. We are going to transition now to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. Please offer your first name, including the first letter of your last name. Ginger C. Ginger C. Jackie H. H. Was that Jackie H? Yes. Okay. Joni M. Joni M. Vinny T. Vinny T. Sarah Mara Mara Z. Z. Try again, Kathy, please, G. G. K. Okay. Kathy G. Kathy G. Mora Z. K. Z. Esther okay, C. Esther C. Okay, that's a good group to start. Okay, we're going to start off with Ginger C. Followed by Jackie H. If everybody else could mute, please. Thank you.
3: Hi, good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for your service. And, oh, Joe, what a treat to hop on the line this morning and to hear you and that amazing, powerful message. Um So thank you so much for your continued service and staying on the firing line. And I just, this sentence, I'm hoping you can elaborate uh, what it means to you, but it says those who.
2: Ginger, you're cutting out, I believe.
0: Ginger C. We're not hearing you. Okay, let's I'm going to ask Ginger to dial back in. We'll catch you at another point. Jackie H, would you like to pose a question now, please? Star 1 to unmute.
4: Yes, I would thank you, Leah, for your service and oh my goodness, thank you, Joe, for this beautiful gift of love and this beautiful presentation that you gave this morning and um, my question is, I have a niece who ha- is uh recovering recovered in alcoholism she's been a huge part of my my recovery as far as my own alcohol issues right i'm I've been recovered for eleven years. And when I went into OA, I started talking to her about it. She also has. She's one of us. I'm sure she is. And she even knows she is, but she's doing the same thing I did for years. She's going to uh, manage it, and she wants to um, figure out how to eat as a normal person. But we never have a conversation where she doesn't bring up her, this issue and finally, last night, I, I said to her, I had given her, you know, I gave her the website. And last night, I, I said, have you considered cutting sugar out totally? And her answer was absolutely not. She liked, she, she liked the sugar in the peanut butter, and she wanted to just eat like a normal person. And so I just, I stepped back, and I said, okay. Okay. Um, I remember what Harlan says, recover, 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 and I know that there's nothing I can say to her. I'm a little in turmoil myself because this... Sorry to
0: interrupt. In the interest of time, if you could pose a question, please, that would be...
4: So what would you do?
1: Well, I'm a fan of that uh, passage in the big book. It says, our behavior will convince them more than our words. You've already told her about Urus Anonymous. She knows that it exists you're in a relationship with her, you have the opportunity to love her.
5: Okay. You
1: have the opportunity to come in and be a loving aunt in all the ways you can be a loving aunt. Our job is not to give advice. You know, I think we're talking about here the the second part of, well, let me just back up and say, I think that the way, this is just my view, um, Jackie, um, because I've been in some similar situations, um, the way that we treat someone is now the message for them?
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Being kind, being loving, being generous, being compassionate, and not talking about, um, not not trying to get them to change. I think you could be an empathic listener. You know, when she talks about her food and her eating, you say that sounds hard. Okay, and that's that's, you know, that's it. Right, it sounds like you're you know, or you can just reflect that. It sounds like you're in a struggle.
4: And just okay. be an empathic
1: yeah. listener. That that would be and I'm not giving you advice, I'm just saying that you know, that's an option. Yeah. But I
4: mm-hmm. think that, that's what I wanted to hear, so thank you. Yeah.
0: Thank
1: you, Jessie.
4: yeah.
0: Thank you so much. Ginger C, are you available now?
3: Yeah, hi, good morning. Can you hear me, Leah?
0: Yes, go ahead with your question, thanks.
3: Oh, great. Thank you for your service, and Joe, what a treat. I just got so much from your beautiful share this morning, so thank you uh, for continuing to remain on that firing line. And I'm just going to read a question, or my question is from page 58. It says, those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, and they're usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And if you could just elaborate that constitutionally incapable of being honest and how you see that. Um,
1: okay. Well, I guess I'm going to be a little controversial here. I don't agree with that one passage that when with that one phrase constitutionally incapable. Um, I don't agree that there are people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Um I think there are people who are not ready to be honest with themselves. Um, I think there are people who resist being honest with themselves. For heaven's sake, I was one of them. I mean, and I, I, um, I don't recover based on the judgments that I pass on people who aren't ready for our program. You know, if someone had passed judgment on me, if someone had said to me when I dropped out, of OA in 1996 and I went on a big six month relapse and they had said to me, Joe, you're constitutionally incapable of being honest with yourself. That would have done nothing but hurt me. Then that's not the message of recovery that we carry. I mean, if you had told me back in 1996, I'd be on the line with you today, I would have said, you're crazy. So I, So I have learned never to dismiss anyone's opportunity for recovery, ever. If someone comes to our rooms Something's going on with their eating, and they might not be ready to deal with it right now, but never dismiss anyone just because they're not ready for our program. Not ready. They're not ready right now. They might be ready down the
2: road. Now, there may be people... Well, anyway, I don't want to belabor it, but that would be my answer, not Ginger. Thanks,
0: Ginger, for the question. -hmm. Thank you. Joni M., star one to unmute joni m you'll need to star one to unmute
6: good morning sorry for uh, sorry I thought I had unmuted mm-hmm. um thank you very much Joe. um I want to tell you that your spiritual errand this morning was well spent because you have given me tremendous hope. Particularly, um, I wanted to focus on the part where you said helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. And um, just briefly, a little over three years ago, I came into OA and I was blessed with recovery. From that first day I walked in, I was struck with um, abstinence. I started working the steps and I started working with others So quickly. And somewhere along the line, somewhere about two and a half years into it, like you, I come from a very big family. And um, all of a sudden, somehow I shifted the balance from working with others in the program to working with others in the family. And, you know, family obligations took over, and I allowed myself to think I was still doing good altruistic work by helping everybody, but I started drifting away from working with others who suffer from this disease. And um, sure enough, within about five or six months after that, I lost my abstinence. I lost my program. I had lost my spiritual connection, I think, first. Um, and um, But again, I was blessed in that my um, my relapse lasted a very brief period of time, a few weeks, and I started working again. So I guess my question is, how does one who comes from such a huge... Uh, family and with lots of needs um, find the balance between working with those in the program and um, which was very consuming um, versus um, doing good things working with your family. So I don't know if that if that makes sense. With that, I'll pass. Well, yeah.
1: Um, well, I can't tell you about navigating a big family because I'm single, and I live alone, and I live with two cats. So I am in no position to tell you how to do that. Um, I will say, and you, you talked about the word balance uh, i don 't believe in balance for recovery, absolutely not. uh trying to have balance it just will torpedo my recovery in an instant. Um, what I believe in and what I experience is that recovery is at the top of a column, and everything underneath that column has got to be good in supporting what 's at the top what 's at the top, recovery, so anything that 's in that column, better be strong, founded. you know it 's got to be really um it 's got to support what 's at the top. If it doesn't support what's at the top, what's at the top is going to suffer, which is my recovery. So I continue to learn. I continue to be humbled in learning to, to stay in, the, in that column. That's how I, I envision that you might have you know, a different you know, visual. But I think we get in trouble when we think we have to have balance. Because for some reason, I don't know why this is, recovery doesn't allow me to have balance. Recovery requires me to put it first. You know, there's a there's a passage in one of the stories in the day, but I don't remember which one it was, but um, they talk about um, recovery has to live a life of its own, that my recovery cannot depend on the ups and downs of life. It has to live a life of its own. And, you know, whether you're in a big family or whether you're single like me or if you're married or divorced or have kids or in-laws, whether you work full-time or whether you're retired Um, No matter what you do for your labor during the day, maybe you're not employed in a conventional way, but you're working all day because you're working to take care of other people. You're working at life. Um, You're involved in your community. Um, Maybe you're going to school. The particulars, this is my view, and I think we have to be much, much more um, clear about this when we carry a message. The particulars of your life are not the point. The particulars of my life are not the point. The big book doesn't say, well, you've got to pay attention to the particulars of your life in order to have recovery. You know, it says it's our our recovery. You know, you could take that, that passage, the passage, it says, remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon people. I think you could even replace the word people with remind the prospect his recovery is not dependent on circumstances. It's dependent on his relationship with God. And then we take our relationship with God and we apply that to our circumstances. We apply our relationship with God to the particulars in our life.
2: So that would be my answer, Joni.
0: Thank you, Joni.
2: Thank you very and
6: much, Joe.
0: Thanks for the question. Vinny T., your turn.
6: Uh, Nabby heard? Hi, Vinny. Yes. Uh, thank you so much, and thank you, Joe. This is just perfect for me today. Um, I honestly just got a sponsor this week, uh, my first sponsee this week, and um trying to learn everything I can and apply it. Um, my question is, uh, you were saying that um, you may never know if you are helpful. Um, do you ever know if you're not being helpful?
1: Oh, what a great question. Yes. Yes. Um, um, Hmm, let me think about do I, I know that, that I know the answer is yes, I'm trying to think how do I know how do I know if I'm not being how do I don't know if I'm not being helpful. Well, one of the ways that I know that I'm not being helpful is that I feel disturbed. When I feel disturbed because of something I've said to someone, I know I haven't been helpful. And the reason I know that is because if I'm disturbed it means that 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 being helpful wasn't my aim. Cuz when being helpful is my aim, I'm not disturbed. When I'm disturbed, it means, oh, I said something that I shouldn't have said. I said something in a way I shouldn't have said it. I kept interrupting somebody or I came off as a know-it-all, et cetera, et cetera. Now I'm disturbed. Really, that's the fastest way that I know that I haven't been helpful because I don't, this is just my view of it. If I'm not motivated by being helpful, I don't think it's possible for me to be helpful. I don't think it's possible for me to be motivated by, by control or fear or anything like that and still be helpful. That's just my view. That would be my
0: answer. Thank you so much. That's great. Thanks, Vinny T. Cassie G, star one to unmute.
3: Oh, good morning, Leia,
0: and thanks so much, uh, Joe, for just your really hopeful, strong, and clear message of recovery. So appreciate it today. Uh, my question is, I would love to hear a little bit more about, you talked about the jellyfish and the brick wall and that you go for the backbone as a sponsor. I loved that, and I would love to hear just a little bit more in detail what that looks like you so I can learn from it. And then secondly, if you – because I, too, celebrated my uh, miracle in the summer of 17, which um, I share with you, and that's exciting, isn't it? It's just so great uh, that we're at this point. But that being said, if if you had a sponsee that was working the steps – but continue to pick up every you know now and then as you're working. And it's before we get to the Step 9 promises, I would just love an example if you've had that experience of what you would do, what that would look like for you in your recovery. Thanks
2: so much. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Well, Kathy, I think it's very important that we, we be very, very clear um, about the relationship between admission of powerlessness and abstinence. Following an abstinent food plan, getting an abstinent food plan, and following the abstinent food plan is a manifestation of step one. If someone keeps going back into the food, they're back at step one. So admission, I admit that there are foods I can't pick up because it triggers a phenomenon of craving. I can't stop eating them. And then admitting that even in the abstinent state, I'm crazy. Oh, my God, help me. You know, what am I going to do now? You know, I talked about um, desperation or hopelessness, creating desperation, and then desperation is the fuel. Actually, I heard this. Desperation is the propellant that gets us through the steps. And what is it that makes us desperate? there's different kinds of desperation. There's the desperation that leads someone to come to an OA meeting. Then there's the desperation that gets someone to ask for a sponsor and there's desperation to start doing what that sponsor suggests. There's a kind of desperation that makes you willing to pick up a book written by a bunch of male heterosexual alcoholics in the 1930s and start reading it and become open-minded to what it says in there. There's a kind of desperation to take your abstinence seriously because you have now admitted that you're powerless. And there's the desperation of, of going through steps 2 through 12 because you are desperate not to go back into the food. That's the desperation that gets you through steps, well, actually, it gets you through steps two through nine. So we have to have that propellant. We have to be very clear about that. Um, and I think I think we owe it to our our sponsees um, not to indulge their going in and out of the food without sending them back to step one, because that's where they are. I would never, ever in a million years have someone who goes back in the food and say, you're in the middle of your fourth step. Okay, well, we'll just keep going. Just get absent in again today and we'll keep going with your fourth step. Absolutely not. You're going back to step one. There's something I want to read. Um, This is in the AA 12 and 12 on page 24. Um, Few people will sincerely try to practice the AA program unless they have hit bottom. For practicing AA's remaining 11 steps means the adoption of attitudes and actions that almost no alcoholic who is still drinking can dream of taking. Who wishes to be rigorously honest and tolerant? Who wants to confess his faults to another and make restitution for harm done? Who cares anything about a higher power, let alone meditation and prayer? Who wants to sacrifice time and energy in trying to carry AA's message to the next sufferer? No. The average alcoholic self-centered in the extreme, doesn't care for this prospect unless he has to do these things in order to stay alive himself. So if someone's in and out of abstinence, but they're continuing to walk through the rest of the steps beyond step one, forget about it. And I actually think we should come up with language in Overeaters Anonymous for what that actually is because they're not working the steps. You cannot work steps two through 12 while you're overeating. It's not step work. It's delusion. It's delusional. What does the big book say? Um, it's... No, I'm not remembering what chapter it's in. Um, by every form
2: of experimentation and... Oh, I can't think of the quote. Um, he will try to prove... We will,
1: They will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule. Um Self-deception and experimentation, we will try to prove ourselves exceptions to the rule. Oh, those other people have to be abstinent in order to work steps 2 through 12, but I don't have to. You know, we tried to find an easier, softer way, but we could not, right? That's also in the big book. The results were nil until we let go absolutely nil. What does nil mean? It means zero. So I'm not here to be somebody's friend, I'm a backbone sponsor, but I'm not here to be your friend. I'm not here to tell you that it's okay for you to keep going back into the food and keep thinking that you're going through the step work. You're gonna, if you're working with me, we're going to help you get an abstinent food plan, and you're going to stick to the abstinent food plan. Anyway, I, I get
0: all fiery on this topic, so... I hope that answers your question, Kathy. I'm with you. I, I agree with you completely. But I just would love some coaching on, okay, so this happens. I'm bringing them back to step one. So do you go just back into the doctor's opinion? We read it again. We go through. What does it look like? Because I believe, too, that if we admit we're powerless over the food, we cannot pick up the first bite of our binge foods because it's going to lead us because of the physical allergy and the
7: mental obsession. But if they do, I just kind of feel like we're going round and round sometimes and it keeps happening. So I guess maybe if I've done it a few times and it's not
0: working, then maybe they're not ready or maybe would you suggest that they maybe get another sponsor? I'm just, I'm just, it's hard. It's frustrating sometimes because I'm with you, but I don't, I don't feel particularly skilled at this.
1: I believe that sponsorship should, I, I don't believe that sponsorship is ever hard. So if you find yourself in a position where you're saying it's hard, there's something there's something off about the relationship. I don't believe that we should be obsessing about our sponsees. If we're obsessing, there's something wrong with the relationship. That's my view, that's been my experience. Um I'm you know, because I it's my view that the sponsee is doing the work. The sponsor is a guide, but the sponsee is doing the work. If I'm working harder than the sponsee, something's wrong in the relationship. And you know, I have reached, there have been times when I've just reached, I've done as much as I can, and the other person is, they're not ready. Mm-hmm. That'd be my answer. Okay. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Kathy G. Stacey K., star one to mute.
5: Good morning, everybody. This is Stacey K. from Colorado. Um, Joe, thank you so much, and and Leah, you too, for your service. I so appreciate it. Um, I I love being a student of this book and of this program. And so I, um, I love that, you know, I really need to grow in understanding effectiveness so I can better carry this message and the whole thing about parenting. And, you know, I'd love to think I'm a backbone, but I think I waffle to a jellyfish. So I get to grow in understanding and effectiveness and see what works and and doesn't work. Um, So, um, but anyway, my question is, Totally different. It's about um, what would you say to a newcomer who perhaps doesn't have 100 pounds to lose? Perhaps they don't have any weight to lose Um, and and maybe they're desperate or maybe they're not. And then also what would you say to somebody that you sponsored that's recovered and didn't have the weight to lose? Like how would they best carry the message um, of depth and weight and hope if
1: if they weren't a hundred pounder, you know? Um, that's my question. Thank you. Well, what we're promised in the program is a spiritual awakening. Weight loss is a byproduct. So if you don't have weight to lose, it doesn't matter. If you've come to our room and you suffer from this condition, we have a program for you. We're not a diet and calories club. It's just a lot of us do ha- have had weight to lose, a lot of us have carried the physical, um, Manifestation of the of the addiction, but I've known a couple of people who um, who never had any they never had any excess weight, and yet they're OA members and engaging the program. Um, so it's not about do you. It, the question is not do you have weight to lose. That's that's never the question for our program. The question for our program is do you have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. If you have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the
2: mind then you're one of us. And we have a program for you. That would be my answer.
0: Thank you, Stacy Kay. Thank you. Maura Z. Your turn. Mara Z, star one ton mute.
8: Sorry about that. I was, but it remuted me. My apologies. Thank you, Leah, for your service, and thank you, Joe. I think my question was just answered, but I'm going to ask it just in case. And uh, my question is this. Um, we're looking at our local meetings and trying to strengthen them from within. And my question is, I personally have observed there are members that are long-timers, have been in the rooms for many, many years. and have not experienced any long have not experienced any weight loss and they appear clearly to me in my eyes that that is an issue for them what if anything can i say personally um to any member like that um i've i've approached and said you know I see you're struggling. How can I be of service? Um, You know, I share with them my recovery um, and so on and so forth. Do you have anything new perhaps to add um, that I might be able to, to bring forth to be of service to these still
1: in the room struggling members? And thank you. Well, I don't have any advice, Maura. I mean, I think if you've recovered, you bring your recovery to the group and you bring your consciousness to your group conscience meetings um, so that you're helping the group uh, to carry Tradition 5, to pr- not carry, but to practice Tradition 5. Um, you said that the long timers who haven't experienced weight loss, I think that I think that probably the issue is that they haven't experienced a spiritual transformation because if they have not experienced weight loss and they're still overweight, um, it means that they haven't admitted their powerlessness over the foods that give them problems and they're still overeating. So that's, I mean, you know, and and the other thing is, um, you know, chronological time. I mean, that just tells you, too, chronological time means nothing to this addiction, absolutely nothing. So I think we need to be clear about that, too. And that's a great, that's a tremendous myth, not meaning good, but meaning a big, that's a big myth in OA. And I hear this a lot. I hear this a lot in Overeaters Anonymous. And I understand it because I used to think this, too. I've been in OA for 25 years. I've been in OA for 40 years. I've been in the program a long time. As if chronological time has earned us anything. It earns us nothing. Zero zilch. So when someone says, I've been in the program a long time, I want to say, yeah, and? You know, that's probably part of your problem. If you think that passage of time is going to take care of you in your recovery, it is not. Um... There are some things that time takes care of. I have gray hair coming in. Time takes care of that. I didn't have to do anything for that to happen. But for my recovery, you know, I've got to be busy about the work of recovery. Uh, I remember being on the phone with someone and she said she was new and she said, or she, not not brand new, but she it was new, in, I think, in the recovery journey. She said, I know the program takes time. And I said, the program doesn't take time. The program takes willingness. That's what our recovery is based on, willing, surrendered action. And that's why there have been times when, you know, I have heard or seen someone who maybe has six months of chronologic maybe been around chronologically for six months. They're on fire. And I love hearing them share. And then there's someone who's been around for 20 years and their voice is flat and uninspired. And I don't I don't care about anything that they're saying. They're you know, it's like words are coming out of their mouth, but it's just like there's nothing there. Why is that? If chronological time took care of our problem, why is that? Why wouldn't the 6-month person be the person who has a flatter tone and the person who has 20 years be on fire? Because chronological time means nothing to our addiction. Um and I think that um And I understand that. Questions.
8: That wasn't the focus of my question, though I apologize if that was how it came out. Okay. I was just looking for okay. something about well, how do I reach these and I apologize. We can talk offline.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't ha I don't have any advice for how to reach them. I mean you know the, the what what our job is, I don't have advice, but I will tell you what our job is. Our job is to carry the message to those who still suffer. So, you might not be able to help these people at your group. They might not be willing to receive your help. You've offered I'm assuming they have your phone number. you can you know perhaps say if you ever want to call me um, uh, and that you know you can carry the message you have at your meeting and you be a you be the voice of attraction at that meeting, and perhaps they perhaps they will be attracted to that. So that would be my uh. That'd be my answer.
8: Thank you, Joe.
0: Thank you, Rosie.
7: Hi. Hello. One moment, oh. please. Esther C.,
0: okay. your turn for a question.
7: Sorry. Hi, it's hi. Esther C. Did you just call Amelia?
0: Yes. Good morning. OK,
7: thanks. Hi, Joe. Good to hear from you. Um, I had actually two questions. I'll ask them, and if you have time to address both of them. Um, thank you very much for your presentation. You really covered all uh, aspects of sponsorship. Um, the first one is, um, you know, the letter you wrote to the nurse or otherwise telling people that you're in OA and this is what it's done for you. At the back of mine, and I'm, you know, sometimes concerned that they're going to end up in some OA meeting where they're not going to hear the message of recovery. And does it, you know, is there anything worthwhile about just inviting them to my meeting or to come listen to a vision for you, or just directing them to a specific meeting. So that was my first question. And the second question I had was your relationship with your sponsees. Once they've, you know, gone through the steps, had a spiritual awakening, they've sort of established a 10th and 11th step practice, and now they're, you know, you, or, you know getting their own sponsees and carrying the message. Does your relationship with them change, um, you know, because the availability of your time whatever it is, is, is limited. In order for you to continue to carry the message to more and more people, I guess that relationship with that sponsor would have to change or shrink in some way. So if you could address that as well, I'd, I'd appreciate it. Thanks.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, no, I do not try to divert anybody into a particular meeting when I'm telling them about o oh, Anonymous. I don't think that's my job. And, um, you know, that's why I think that suggestion of going to six meetings is good, and that's why I say, you know, go to six meetings and try a variety of meetings. Because if they don't hear a message at the first meeting, maybe they'll hear the message at the third meeting that they go to or the fifth meeting. Maybe they'll hear it at the very first meeting and they'll go to that meeting six times. It's not up to me to try to control or direct what meetings people go to. I've done my job by telling them about Overeaters Anonymous and then they can follow up with that. It's an unfortunate reality that there are meetings that don't carry the message they do not live up to tradition five, and you know I don't have a magic wand i don't i mean i'm i I have no power over that um but i I have the power to when it comes to my turn to share at the group that I'm in that I give the message as strongly as I can that when newcomers come to my group, I follow up a phone call with them pretty much the next day um. So that's my answer to that. Um, And then, yes, my relationship does change um, when people go from being new to being recovered. It absolutely changes. It has to because they don't need from me the same kinds of things they needed from me. I'm a different kind of tool for them um, by the time they've recovered compared to when they were new. Absolutely. And that's, um, you know, I really take more of a, I do a lot more listening with a recovered sponsor, no, with a recovered sponsee than I do with someone who hasn't yet recovered. I'm doing a much more guiding, directing, um, suggesting um with people who are new because I think they need more of that. And it's it's a but but I'm also reminded that um the recovered sponsee still needs a sponsor um and in order for me to be a a good tool for them, then I need to adapt and I need to adapt my sponsorship to them. So, well, let me just not be very clear on that. Um, Just because someone is recovered doesn't mean they still don't need a sponsor. So they're calling me every day. I mean, they, they need that, they want that. So how do I show up for them in the best way? And they will come to me with with issues and struggles and, you know, mostly mostly not. They're mostly not coming to me with, with issues and struggles. Um, but every once in a while, there, something will come up. This just happened the other day um, with someone. And I was able to share with her, I said, you know, when we don't do Step 11, our interactions with other people don't go very well. So I was able to offer that uh, to her. So anyway, th- those would be my uh, answers to your questions, Esther.
7: Thanks, Joe. But it, I mean, it's, you know, after 10, 15, 20 years of sponsoring, how would you be able to speak to every sponsee every day, um, and still have room to continue to carry the message to others? Well, sponsorship
1: is only one of the ways that I carry the message to others. So mm-hmm. I've got, so I have sponsees who call me every day. I call newcomers just about every day. Almost every day, I'm on the phone with at least one newcomer. That's another way I carry the message um I carry the message at my group at my home group um I carry the message to other groups that I go to you know if I go to a meeting if I go to a meeting that's not my home group, I carry the message there um, so and I'm always on the i'm my radar is up for people out in the world that I meet who um like people in my department at work, for example, my radar is up are you know, are they gonna say something as soon as I hear anything that indicates any kind of struggle or hardship with their eating, that's my open door and I'm I'm ready. so I'm actually carrying the message in a number of ways, daily and weekly, and then I'm at the ready to carry the message in other ways. So that'd be my answer to that, Esther.
7: Thanks, Joe. That's great.
0: Thank you, Esther. Hello. Joe it's ten Hello. It's- Excuse me, one second, Beverly. Hold on, Beverly, one moment. Joe, it's 10.02 Eastern Time. I want to be respectful of your time. Do you have time for a few more questions, or would you like me to wrap up?
1: Yeah, I I have about another 15 minutes.
0: Okay, another 15 minutes. Beverly, I hear you. Anyone else have questions? Gina R. Pete B. Robynneke. Hi, I have a question. One minute, please. Hold on one second. I've got Beverly, Gina R., Pete B., I'll take one more. Okay? Rowena,
7: That's
0: okay. All right, let's stop there. Thank you, Beverly. Your question, please.
7: Yeah, I have a question that um, came, that I was a sort of piggybacking on someone else's question. I keep saying I don't have enough time, and I feel resentful about the. Um, the homework or the assignments my sponsor gives, gives me what do, do you have anything to say about time management i don't have anything
1: to say about time management because i'm not a time management consultant
2: <laughs> i will
1: say that um i will say that when i was an active addiction my um my addiction took almost all of my time and so recovery needs to take my time. I mean, I, you know, I heard someone say one time when she talks about, you know, it's like, you know, phone calls are coming in and, and, uh, you don't necessarily want to take a phone call. And she said, I'm divinely inconvenienced. Okay. This program is not convenient. It, it's not here for, for, it's, the program is not here to make it easy for us to manage our time. The program is here to affect an internal transformation, and it requires willingness and surrender, and that's what has worked for me. So I think that anyone who has the time to be a compulsive overeater has the time to do the work of recovery. That would be my answer to that, Beverly.
0: Thanks, Beverly. Gina R.
1: Thank you, Leah.
5: Uh, Good morning, Joe. This is Gina R. in Green Valley, Arizona. Um, I was just curious if there were any other parts of the big book um, like the constitutionally incapable part where you said you didn't agree that you have uh, such a strong opinion about and
1: may disagree with. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question, Gina. You know, I have a recovery friend who said, um, she said, you know, there may be in, in this regarding, <coughs> excuse me, um, we were having a conversation about the chapter we agnostics and um, and I was saying, you know, there's, there's, there's passages in there that I, you know, that I don't like and I don't agree with. And she said, you know, she said it's okay that we don't agree. You know, it's, it's okay that if we don't agree with certain passages, we still need a power greater than ourselves. And so it was really helpful to me. You know, I don't have to agree with every single solitary word and every single solitary passage and every single solitary sentence and every single solitary word and every single solitary every single solitary in the big book. This book has changed my life. This book gives me a design for living. So, what I've learned to do, Jean, is to say. Okay, I don't agree with that. Let's move on. You know, I don't agree. Yeah, okay, I don't agree with that. Let's move on. Um, I didn't write the big book. I didn't edit the big book. The big book is not a reflection of me and what I, you know, how I want to word things. So what? Um, So I've learned that, and I've learned that my recovery is not based on what I reject and what I resist. My recovery is based on what I accept and what I embrace. I embrace the big book.
2: I'm a student of the big book. I love the big book. So let's, keep you know, for me, keep the focus
1: on what is the core truth for me. This book has given me a way to live. Am I now going to spend my time picking apart a particular passage that perhaps I don't agree with? I don't have the luxury of doing that. So that'd be my answer
0: to
2: your question.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks, Gina. Pete B.
1: Thank you. Are you able to hear me okay?
0: I hear you well. There may be an echo. Hey, hey, Joe, that was uh that had depth and weight. I really appreciate your message. I'm curious
1: and, and based upon your last response, I don't know if this is an area you agree with or not, but I'm curious where it says that a much more important demonstration of these principles lies before us in our homes, occupations, and affairs. How, what does that mean to you, and how are you demonstrating that in your life and what that will pass? Oh, yeah. Thank you, Pete. Well, um, you know, I to me, that is the second part of Step 12, you know, and practicing these principles in all of our affairs, which means we are, in. And, and the 12 and 12 goes into detail about this too, that in Step 12, <clears throat> excuse me, we're in step twelve. We're not part of it is we're carrying the message to others, and then the other part of it is we are practicing this new way of life in all of our affairs. so when I get that phone call from that telemarketer and I'm feeling a little irritated, what am I doing? How am I treating them? Okay um, when I picked up my computer yesterday from the repair shop and they gave me a piece of information that was kind of disturbing to me. How do I respond? When I'm in a meeting with my with my team at work and I don't want to be in a meeting because I don't like meetings. I don't like meetings. I like work sessions,
2: but I don't like meetings.
1: What do I do? How do I behave? Um you know, I well, anyway, I I don't have to go off in more detail, but I love that passage in our respective home occupations and affairs. Um, they're saying we have to take our transformed self out into the world. As I heard an AA speaker say, we go out and touch the lives of others in a positive way. So that would be my answer, Pete.
0: Thanks, Pete. Thank you. Our Our final question for the day comes from Rowena Kay.
2: Oh, hi,
7: there Joe. Thank you so much for your um your share. It was really, really helpful, especially what you said about the um sending relapses back to step one because that's been me loads of times. But my question is um um when do you think somebody should start sponsoring? yeah, I mean assuming they're abstinent. thank you,
1: mhm. Well, I think if we're going by the big book, we say you know once you've had a spiritual awakening, that now qualifies you to carry the message to others. I mean, I think the big book is is clear about that. you've had an inner transformation that you now hunger to carry to others. You've been through the steps the first time, so you have the ability to share that experience with others you know i'm I'm a fan of saying that there's only one thing that matters in this program, which is our experience. You know, the moment that I start become knowledgeable, that I start becoming knowledgeable is the moment that I'm headed down a path to disaster. It's only my experience that matters. Because I can have opinions up the yin yang. I can have philosophies up the yin i <laughs> I'm sorry? Where's mommy?
0: Proceed, Joe, I'll take care of that. Oh, oh.
2: Okay, um, so
1: the the big book, the the language of the step is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So we've gone through steps one through eleven. As the result of that, we've had a spiritual awakening. Now we go out to carry the message to others
2: and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. That would be my answer.
0: Thank you, Rowena, and thanks to everybody who posed questions today. And, of course, thank you, Joe, for your generosity on the line this morning with your time and sharing your experience with all of us. Thank you so very much. Share ID, again, for this presentation, 12,413. That's 12413. And we're going to close from page 164. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled,